Tēnā koutou, no mai haere mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tang. Another week, another lockdown for our biggest city. As Auckland shifts back to alert level two, business leaders want more detail from the government about the future of our COVID-19 response. Then, was it a bat, was it a pangolin, or could the virus have escaped from a lab? We speak with a WHO investigator who's been in Wuhan, China, trying to find the source of COVID-19. And then, a year since the WHO declared a global pandemic, Kiwis around the world compare their experiences. There was one evening lying in bed where I was struggling to breathe. We've had three pretty intense lockdowns in Israel. 1,146, I think, on the worst day. That's deaths in one day. We'll have that story for you soon. Three hours ago, Auckland came out of an Alert Level 3 lockdown and moved into Alert Level 2, while the rest of New Zealand moved to Alert Level 1. Health officials say there remains a possibility of more lockdowns in the future as they wait to vaccinate the general population. But a group of business leaders are calling on the government to be more transparent with their COVID-19 response plans for the months and years ahead. Rob Campbell is the chair of Sky City, Tourism Holdings and Somerset Retirement Villages and the Chancellor of Auckland University of Technology. He's with us this morning. Tēnā koe. Welcome to Q&A. Yeah, sure. So you've basically cherry-picked um, organisations and industries that have been most affected by COVID-19 in the last year. Yeah, I'm, I'm a foolish troubleshooter. <laughs> is, is there any way you can compare how those different organisations have been affected? Give us a bit of insight from your last 12 months. Uh, look, they're each different but each impacted. Uh, tourism Holdings, for example, no tourists, not good for the business at all. It's been traumatic and, and still is. So uh, we've been able to react and to adjust to a domestic-only situation in the United States and Australia and here, uh, but it's, it's, it's very ordinary uh, and, and won't get better till we find a new way to redevelop tourism. A lot of work going on in that in the industry. What sort of tourism are we going to have in the future? Uh, bears on this issue of... Uh, what is our relationship with the government agencies like and how can we plan? For, for Sky City, again, tourism's not quite so important there, but it is, you know, maybe 15% of our, of our business. And so recovering from that, making mm. investments, employing staff, really hard. In Somerset, retirement aged care, the issue really is a staffing one because we do recruit a lot of staff uh, from overseas into that. And just more recently, getting involved with AUT, tremendous problems for the tertiary sector with knowing what the flow of overseas students is likely to be. So that's got big capital expenditure issues around it and big staffing issues. So everyone affected negatively, everyone differently. How would you rate the government's response to COVID-19? I don't think New Zealand was well prepared for this. Uh, I think over the years, our public health agencies and capacity had been degraded. Uh, when it hit, I think we've done marvellously well. Tremendous political leadership. Everyone has scrambled uh, together. Uh, we've made it up as we went along and, and done really well. So just rate that tremendously uh, highly. OK, are you talking about the public health response or are you talking about support for business? I think across, across the board, given the scramble that there was, it's not perfect. It, it, there are people who have been more negatively impacted than they have to be and all those sorts of things. But generally, the initial response has been very good. But we're now moving into this phase where we know that COVID is going to be around the globe in one form or another, hopefully not evolving badly, but we know it's around. We've got at least a couple of years that we have mm. to plan for. And are we well planning? Are we, are we well structured for that, both in terms of plan 
and delivery. And the concern that the group that I was with this week expressing an opinion uh, are obviously of the view that we're not well prepared for that. These are big name business leaders. Yourself, Patrick Strange, the chair of Chorus New Zealand and Auckland Airport, Prue Flax, the chair of Mercury Energy, Joan Withers, the chair of the Warehouse Group, and Scott St John, the chancellor of the University of Auckland and chair of Fisher and Paykel Healthcare. Can you talk to me a little bit more about the concerns your group has? Sure, so we represent, I think, a kind of a tip of the iceberg. There's been just a lot of discussion amongst uh, large business leaders uh, about our response and about what we do. Uh, this group just informally came together uh, because we felt that it was time to express a view about the future, one that's not intended to be whinging or moaning or promoting our own sectional interests, but uh, saying to the government agencies as much as to the politicians, we're not well prepared for the future ahead. We think we can do a lot more together uh, and prepare ourselves better. Why are we not well prepared? What, what specifically are we not prepared for? I think a lot of the issues were identified uh, publicly last year by the report that Sir Brian Roach and Heather Simpson did uh, on the initial phase and mm. what we should be looking forward to. Uh, they had a pretty good insight, I think, into what the agency problems were, the delivery problems, even things like saliva testing, lots of things where they made uh, we think constructive suggestions, only a few of which have really been put up and implemented. And I think the core of the problem here is not one so much of political leadership as our delivery capacity to make decisions by drawing in the best information that's available, to implement those decisions and communicate them, but to deliver the decisions. You know, the uncertainty there is right through the community at the moment, not just business, but about what the vaccine rollout is going to be, how that's going to be structured, how it's going to work. The politicians can kind of set the, the guidelines for that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we know that in other countries, uh, roadmaps are being developed and published that people can interact with, plan around. And, uh, you know, for business in particular, uh, we're having to make these big capital decisions. We're having to make these big uh, personnel decisions. We know they're in uncertainty. But the issue is managing that uncertainty. And I think channeling everything through the Ministry of Health, which is essentially a policy ministry, is one of the blockages that we have. Have you noticed any difference in, in splitting off those responsibilities between the Minister Andrew Little and the Minister Chris Hipkins? Oh, look, not at my level, but uh, I'm not interacting day by day by mm. then with that. OK, so you raised, you raised a couple of different, different points there. The first was the capacity to deliver on plans at a bureaucratic or, or government level. The second, though, was having some certainty around the metrics through which decisions are being made at a government level. So, uh, to be clear, do, do you want a seat at the table? So do you want business to be involved in those decisions or do you just want more information about how those decisions are being made? We want the whole community to be involved. So there are community delivery agencies that are feeling exactly the same way, way mm. th that we're feeling. There are small business uh, agencies that are feeling exactly the same way and I'm sure many small business people. So the, the, it is possible and desirable that we get input from across that and there's been a tendency in the response and I, I think it's because of the emergency nature of it but at the government bureaucracy level to kind of hold on to that to think we know we've got this huge responsibility we've got to do something about it and some of these other people saying things is a distraction mm -hmm. uh, well it's not uh, they've got to learn better to draw that in so for example um, 
in businesses, this is not a matter of, of a couple of big business leaders trotting down to the beehive and having a say or, or having a listen. We have resources in our businesses that are brilliant at logistics, a lot better than the government agency will have. They should be drawn on. We, we have people in the community who have much better knowledge about how to get to local populations. They should be drawn on. At the moment, the structure is very much one of the Ministry of Health and then going down through the DHBs, which are not really structured for this kind of response. And again, go back to the fact that was identified months and months and months ago by Heather Simpson and mm. Brian Roach, and yet only a limited amount of that has been picked up on. Should businesses get a say in public health decisions? I think everyone should get a say in public health decisions. Big business is one aspect of it because we employ a lot of people, so it's important to us and important to the people we employ. But no, we shouldn't have a, a kind of exclusive right, not at all. I, I note in your letter, you as a group say, uh, quote, you, you want to be providing input and expertise into the government's strategy for virus management. Does that mean, for example, that business should have a say as to who gets vaccinated first? Well, again, a bit repetitive, but I think everyone should have a say and that should be taken into account. It, it shouldn't be driven by big business. We're only, we're only one part of the interests of society. What we're saying is we have resources. We have, we have planners, we have procurement people, we have logistics people. Mm. Those people should be drawn on because it's expertise which isn't naturally available to a lot of the government agencies because they don't always have to deal with these things. A lot of these things that they're now having to deal with a day-to-day -day business of various, of, of various agencies. Take, for example, vaccinations. Uh, the retirement and aged care industry has aged care homes, it has nurses, it has facilities. Uh, could be drawn on in a whole lot better way. At the, at the moment, uh, my team's at Somerset, and they'll, be, they'll mm. be true elsewhere, are really sitting there waiting for the next direction. Uh, and that's really hard. I don't mean they're sitting there, they're working hard, but, mm. but mm. They, they don't have a view about what the next step is, how it's going to be implemented, how they can play their role, all those things. And that's repeated across businesses and community groups throughout New Zealand. I, I know that there will be people saying by the mere nature of COVID-19, it is impossible to have higher levels of certainty. You know, just within the last couple of months, for example, the different strains of COVID-19 that have emerged may have impacted our vaccination strategy, may have impacted our border strategy. So you can't have that much certainty with uh, a pandemic that is evolving in this nature. That's, that's absolutely true. You can't have uh, absolute certainty. That's true of pandemics. It's also true of economic conditions. It's true of climatic conditions. It's true of the universe, frankly. The issue for business, and it should be for government agencies, is how do we manage uncertainty? How do we develop scenarios which can help us to plan for that uncertainty and be ready for it? Mm. That's the sort of stuff business is doing every day. And what we're saying is you should be able, government agencies, to draw on some of that expertise, not regarded all as self-serving, because quite often business can be self-serving, quite a lot of the time, but it's not always. And in these sorts of national emergency situations, there is an ability to, I think, draw on the skills and capacities we have. Not, not, not the people, like the people who signed this letter, we're just the top of the organisations, mm. we're just the spokespeople. The real skills are in the organisation and that's where they should be drawing on. So, so what might that, um, the structure of that organisation or that interaction look like? I think of the Prime Minister's Business Advisory Council, the role that former Air New Zealand CEO Rob Fife took on. Is that the sort of thing that you want to see the government implement? 
I'm now leaping out of anything I have any authority for, but in my view, that's not the issue. Uh, I think if we want to get a message to the Prime Minister or the Minister of Health at our, in our roles, we, we, we can do that. Uh, the issue is really drawing on the skills we have within our businesses, the technical skills, the logistical mm. skills, the implementation skills that we have in our businesses, uh, and, and drawing on those. So it's, you know, for example, I think that if there were an agency that was really proactive, it would have said, these are the skills that we need. Could the private sector provide these? And maybe we all second a few people there who are expert in that area. Form a task force of people who can do things, not people who can sit around a table and talk like me. Mm. What sort of feedback have you had since you published this letter? Look, mostly it's been really good. Uh, a lot of feedback from community groups and small businesses to say, hey, that's true for us too. And, and we're explaining, yeah, sure, we absolutely agree with that. Uh, there's been some response from, uh, from politicians, which is, uh, I think, interested in what we're saying and uh, initially probably a bit defensive. Uh, we didn't intend this to be a political attack. I noticed some media uh, called it demands. Well, that wasn't the nature of what we said or what we're doing at all. So there's been good reaction there. A few people saying, oh, this is just big business being self-serving, Rob. Uh, and, you know, to me, the example I keep using back is, well, you know, it, business does have interests, obviously it expresses them. But if you take people like the universities, they're public agencies themselves, and overseas students are an important part of them because that's been a long-standing policy of successive governments. And yet planning for the university capital expenditure and staffing is really hard in this environment. We, what we need is the kind of scenario planning and openness to outside involvement that we are seeing in a number of other countries mm. that we're not seeing here. And I think that's a problem about the way we run our agencies. Like I said at the start of this interview, you are uniquely placed as the Chair of Sky City Tourism Holdings in Somerset uh, and the uh, Chancellor of Auckland University of Technology to have some interesting insights as to the structure of the New Zealand economy as it stands. Do you think COVID-19 is forcing us to consider diversification to the New Zealand economy in a way that might affect some of your organisations? Yes, I think it is. I think so. there's a grand level at which we are learning that monocultures of any kind are dangerous because they, they, they focus risk rather than spread, spread risk. So. Uh, I think that over-reliance on any kind of monoculture within an industry or within an economy has been exposed as, as creating tremendous risk and, and that's something we all have to learn from. I think we also uh, have learned that uh, we need to focus uh, a lot more on involving the community as a whole in our businesses because, uh, you know, if you take tourism, I think there's a, a bit of antagonism to tourism uh, which is probably justified by some of the things that have occurred in tourism, but isn't intrinsic to tourism itself. The issue is how do we turn tourism around? Is tourism capable of being regenerative and community building? And we think it is. I know there's work that's gone on in the tourism industry, uh, which hopefully will be released soon, which will, will, will point mm. the way. Uh, so, yeah, a huge number of learnings uh, for all of us. All right. Thank you very much for your time, Rob. We appreciate you, it. It's a really interesting conversation.
After the break, COVID Response Minister Chris Hipkins addresses some of those concerns. And then later, China was criticised for delaying an inquiry into the source of the COVID-19 outbreak. But a WHO investigator who's just returned from Wuhan tells us what his team uncovered. In the days and weeks ahead, we expect to see the number of cases, the number of deaths, and the number of affected countries climb even higher. That was WHO Director General Tedros Ghebreyesus declaring a global pandemic a year ago this week. Chris Hipkins is the Minister for the COVID-19 response and is with us now. Can you believe that was a year ago, Minister? Well, on one level it feels like a lot longer than a year ago and on another level it doesn't feel like a year at all. Have we had any new cases overnight? Uh, no new community cases overnight. We're, as, as always, there, there's likely to be some uh, additional cases in our managed isolation of people who have just come into the country, but no new community cases reported overnight. OK. I, I want to start with some stuff from this week and then move on to the big picture. So, so two of the people to have tested positive in the latest outbreak, we understand, had spent time at work. Under the Leave Support Scheme, people who are isolating after being tested are only eligible for a sum uh, less than the minimum wage. If, from this point, you want people to be staying home once they've been tested for COVID-19, if they have any symptoms, regardless of the alert levels, why don't you pay them more? Look, the, the Leave Support Scheme was never designed to be a complete wage replacement for people who are staying home. It's designed to be an additional financial support. When we set that scheme up, I think it's been well canvassed over the last week, when we set that scheme up, uh, the context was quite different. We were potentially looking at having thousands of people uh, needing to access that scheme. The reality is now it's it's smaller. Um, and, you know, we, we always have a look at that. We're not proposing any changes at this point, or, at this, say, or I should say we've not made any decisions on any changes at this point. I'd never rule that out for the future, but at this point, um, you know, it, it is what it is. But, but why not? I mean, I mean, that's the point, right? Well, f fewer people are, are requiring this scheme than when you originally set it up, which, of course, means that overall it's cheaper. I think you need to look at this, the leave support scheme in the context of quite a lot of additional financial support that's being provided by government at the moment, the, the wage subsidy, the resurgence payments, uh, the leave support scheme. Uh, there are a variety of different levels of financial support that are available at the moment, which come at a significant cost to the taxpayer. Uh, yeah. And ultimately, that's money that the taxpayer in the future is going to have to pay back because it's being funded by government borrowing. So we do have to balance up all of those things. You know, the government's ability to continue to put money out there is not unlimited. No. Uh, ultimately, we will have to pay back at some point in the future. Oh, of course, of course. We understand this is expensive, but of course we've spent billions of dollars supporting business through the wage subsidy scheme. We understand that uh, the alert level uh, three lockdown in Auckland has cost our economy the best part of half a billion dollars. Isn't it actually the financially prudent thing to do to ensure that anyone who is staying home is being paid at least the minimum wage? But we're also asking employers to, do, to play their part here as well. That's you know part of the quid pro quo with us saying, look, we'll, we'll provide the wage subsidy, we'll provide the resurgence payments. But where you have staff who need to stay home, yes, we're providing additional support for that as well. But actually the cumulative effect of that is that we want businesses and employers to be playing their part and making sure that they're properly supporting their staff who are staying home too. Is the government making, uh, through its contact tracing, 
making it totally clear to people that disclosures made for the purposes of contact tracing will not be uh, have any impact on immigration status or welfare status? Absolutely, and you will have heard me say that many times in the public press conferences. Uh, Immigration New Zealand will not be given any information that is obtained through contact Mm. tracing. In fact, any information we obtain through contact tracing, we use only for contact tracing, Uh, and as soon as we no longer need that, it is destroyed. So we do not keep that any longer than we need it for. Who gives people that message? Uh, they're given that message by the people who are doing the contact tracing. Uh, we've, I've reiterated that message publicly as many times as I possibly can as well. Uh, but certainly that information is supplied to you know when the, through the interview process. The, the interview process is quite extensive and it's quite personal. You know we mm. get a lot of information about people, about their lives, and we we do have to share some of that. But we try only to share the parts of it that we have to. So where people are sharing information about personal contact with other people, for example, if we can track down that other person uh, and there's no public interest need for everyone to know about that, we don't share that information uh, because as long as we can find that person and we can isolate them and test them if we need to, not everyone needs to know about that. Now, that means that we get a lot of questions uh, about where people have been and who they've been in contact with, some of which we're able to answer publicly and some of which we're not. But we ultimately want uh, people to come forward and share as much information as they can. Mm. We just uh, spoke... Uh, with the chair of Sky City and um, Tourism Holdings, who's seeking more clarity from the government as to some of our plans and the government uh, plans from this point forth. Can you give us more detail as to our vaccine rollout plan? We understand that border workers and their families and frontline health workers will be the first to be vaccinated. Who comes next? I just want to, before perhaps I could respond to a couple of the comments made there first, um, I think the business are looking for a couple of things for us. One is more certainty, and some of that we can give and some of that we simply can't give. They want to know when, when's COVID-19 going to be over, when's life going to get back to normal. I think we all want to know the answer to that. At this point, I don't have an answer. On the vaccines, though, um, we have been working with the private sector. So if you look at the vaccine team, we do have people seconded from the private sector helping to lead that. We've got people from Fonterra, from you know freight and logistics companies. Uh, we've got HR professionals in helping us with the workforce needs. They're seconded from the private sector. So the private sector is a big part of our rollout plan here. They are involved in those decisions mm. um, and they are, they're playing a really, really important role. We have focused on bringing in that private sector expertise. Border workers and their families, frontline health workers, who comes next? So the next group is, is uh, well, frontline health workers is where we're starting now. We will have more to say in the coming week. One of the things I understand people have been frustrated about the, the lack of the more detailed plan uh, going, you know, moving into the next sort of couple of months. One of the things that slowed us down there have been the negotiations with the pharmaceutical companies. We will have more about that early next week. But Minister, sorry to interrupt. To down those... what, but why does the order, why does the, why does the, why do the dates with which the vaccines are arriving in New Zealand impact the vaccine rollout plan? Because not all vaccines are as effective with different population groups. Right. So, for example, AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, we have seen evidence to suggest that that is not as suitable for the over 65s uh, as the Pfizer vaccine is. So knowing which vaccines are arriving when and and where um, does have an impact on the sequencing of the rollout. And we've been working very hard to lock down those details and we will have more to say about that early next week. Once we once now that we've locked that down, we will be able to give a lot more certainty.
Okay, I just I want to I want to compare us with uh, the Australian model here, and this has uh, been available, I think, on the Australian COVID nineteen website for about two months now. I'm just going to show our viewers at home. I'm sure you're familiar with the Australian vaccine portal. Basically, you can go on to the Australian COVID nineteen website and put in a few details about yourself. So you go into this portal, you put in your age, you tell it what state or territory you're living in. They ask if you're working in uh, defence or uh, as a frontline medical worker. Uh, they ask if you have any pre-existing conditions. Uh, they ask if you're an Indigenous Australian. And then from that information, they're able to tell you what phase you will be vaccinated in. This has been available for two months now. Uh, phase 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B. And of course there is some uncertainty as to exactly when the, the, the vaccinations will arrive in the country, but people are at the very least able to get a general idea as to when they'll be able to be vaccinated. How long until New Zealand has the same system? We have taken a different approach to other countries, including Australia, that we have not made specific commitments around vaccines until we know that we were able to, that we've known we've been able to deliver on them. So if you look at the targets Australia set for vaccinations, for example, they haven't been able to meet them um, because they haven't been able to secure the vaccine supply. So a big part of our focus has been on making sure that we can match supply and demand, uh, not give people an indication that they're going to be vaccinated by a certain date if we are not able to deliver on that. Now, we'll have more information on the detail of exactly what vaccines we're expecting to arrive and when early next week, and that will give people more certainty about when they can expect to be vaccinated. Uh, and we will release... Uh, a bit more of, you know, well, a lot more of that information about the, the levels. Uh, but one of the things that we've been working through, as I said, is making mm. sure that the sequencing framework lines up with, you know, what we know about vaccine efficacy, uh, what we know about, you know, which vaccines are best, uh, and so on. And so we'll have more about that early next week. So, to be clear, older populations won't be vaccinated with the AstraZeneca vaccine? Uh, look, I, I can't, I don't want to preempt that we've we, we will have more information about which vaccines but, we're going to be using but that was when, you, that's and, what you indicated and, earlier that was your concern <laughs> that's why we haven't no, had this detail earlier the, well, <clears throat> it's one of the things we've been weighing up is which vaccines are, are most effective now the, one of the challenges there jack is that you know the science uh, is still evolving so the the, the clinical mm. trials for some of the vaccines have, hasn't been finished yet and so you want to get that information as reliable as possible before you make those decisions OK. Um, you've talked about developing the world's smartest border. What will that mean? Well, ultimately, um, you know, we're always looking at how we can improve our border settings. Uh, and when, as vaccines are rolled out, as vaccines are more uh, available internationally, as we understand what that means in terms of transmissibility of the vaccine, uh, we could actually have quite different border settings to the ones we have now. Not everyone will necessarily need to go through two weeks of managed isolation, for example, which is what everybody coming into the country has to do at the moment. As we get to a position where you know vaccines are part of the global picture, uh, that will probably have an impact on our border. Uh, as we can open up safe travel areas with other countries, Australia, the Pacific, uh, we will absolutely be doing that. Mm. Uh, and you know we've been working really closely with the Cook Islands in Australia in particular as the first two cabs off the rank um, to make sure that we can get those uh, safe travel zones opened up when we can. So all of those things are happening. Um, there's a bit of uncertainty around all of those as well because there's uncertainty around vaccines. Uh, but 
uh, we're, we're working hard to try and give that certainty. I mean, we're starting to get data from international studies, though, that, that are reporting on the transmission rates from people who have been vaccinated with the same vaccines that we're going to have in New Zealand, AstraZeneca, uh, and the current Pfizer vaccine. It suggests that transmission rates are, dr are dramatically reduced uh, within communities that have been vaccinated. So at what point might we start using vaccine passports to allow people who've been vaccinated into New Zealand? New Zealand's actively in, in involved in the conversations around vaccine passports. Um, I think vaccine passports are almost an inevitability um, at, at some point in the future, and, and probably not the not-too-distant future. I think that's likely to happen. Uh, I think, you know, there, there's a lot of water to flow under the bridge very quickly, um, but I think that vaccine passports yeah, are highly likely what, to be what, something that people will need to get. What, what, what does the not-too-distant future mean? I would say within the next year. Um, you know, one of the things around a vaccine passport, of course, is vaccines need to be available um, to everyone who may need to travel before a vaccine passport could be uh, made a, a prerequisite, for example. Uh, because you couldn't say to someone you can't travel unless you've had a vaccine if that person couldn't actually get a vaccine. Does that mean then, Minister, that we will have to have everyone in New Zealand vaccinated before we allow anyone in from overseas who's been vaccinated with the Pfizer or AstraZeneca vaccine? Not necessarily. One of the things that we need to understand is how that research around uh, transmissibility applies in the New Zealand context. Mm. And I say that something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily uh, understand at this point. Those studies are being done in the context of widespread community transmission. Mm. So, yes, it's reducing transmission within a community where the virus is transmitting, you know, regularly uh, and frequently. And, and, and in New Zealand, that's not the context. So our context is we're trying to stop um, the very rare transmission events. And so our research, we're looking for a different research base to the one that perhaps isn't, uh, is currently available now. So our context is quite different. And we, we look around the world all the time to say, what can we learn from other countries around the world? Very few are in the position that New Zealand's in. So if you look at the research mm. we're doing on, tra on transmission of the virus through air conditioning systems, no one else is looking at that because no one else really cares. Um, because in the context of you know person-to-person -person spread being the biggest transmitter, they're not looking at air conditioning systems as we are. Will the trans-Tasman bubble be opened this month as you originally planned? Uh, look, we're talking to Australia at the moment. Uh, the key thing is just getting a, a clear understanding, a, a clear set of agreements on both sides of the Tasman. We did. We were working on that for months. Australia, well, Australia's position changed in the sense that they wanted to reserve the right to close the border at short notice when when they wanted to, um, and so we've been recalibrating to say, well, if that was going to be the new arrangement, it, that wasn't what we were originally talking about. Um, then how would we respond to that? And so we've had to change our approach um, because there was a change in approach on the other side of the of, of the ditch. Uh, and so we've been working uh, to try and make sure we, we really understand what would happen if there was an outbreak in New Zealand or in Australia. Finally then, when do you expect to have certainty on that question? Uh, look, we'll give certainty as soon as we can. Um, it's really going to depend on, on negotiations across both countries. So we can't necessarily control that. One of the challenges in working with Australia is it's not just the federal government you have to talk to, you have to talk no, to the, the state, state governments government. as well. Mm. And and they don't necessarily agree with each other. So that can be a bit of a challenge too. All right. COVID-19 Response Minister Chris Hipkins, thanks once again for your time this morning. Up next, although New Zealand has enjoyed relative freedoms in the last year, many Kiwis abroad have not been so lucky.
The second outbreak uh, was was quite unnerving, actually. This was the first time that Taiwan's defences have really been penetrated. Fortunately, that was uh, snuffed out. Hoki mai tifano. Welcome back to Q&A. Months of lockdowns and, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of deaths. Relative to most other countries, New Zealand has enjoyed greater day-to-day -day freedoms in the last year and much lower transmission rates of COVID-19. But for Kiwis living abroad, a year since COVID-19 was declared a global pandemic, it has been a very different experience. Here's Fena Owen. My name's Alex, I'm from Christchurch, and I live in Tel Aviv in Israel. So I actually did get COVID back in September. For me personally, it was a very, uh, very easy period. I had a day of fever and that was about it. We've had three pretty intense lockdowns in Israel um, where you weren't really supposed to go from your house more than a kilometre or so, except in an emergency. Although we're now allowed out and further than that, kind of one kilometre from our house, uh, most things are still not open. We still can't go into uh, restaurants and museums, although that's supposed to change here. If you have a green pass, a vaccine passport, as it's also known. Typically calling it a dark on your look, a green passport. Uh, there are, of course, people who don't want to get vaccinated uh, around the place, but the, the drive's been pretty successful, and I think that the people who were quite reluctant initially are increasingly kind of coming on board. Wells. I'm from Auckland and I've been living in London in the UK for three and a half years. So I got COVID in September last year. Uh, it started as just a cough. It did get worse. I think I was probably quite sick for about five days. There was one evening lying in bed where I was struggling to breathe. Well, we're now in our third national lockdown, but on top of that, we've had local lockdowns and we've basically been under some form of restrict COVID restrictions for nearly an entire year now. We're just feeling fatigued. It's just been such an unusual year. It's been frustrating. It's been hard. It's been lonely. It's been boring. Um, and I think everyone's just ready for this to be over. My name's Aaron Parama. I'm from Levin, and I now live in Madison, Wisconsin, USA. In Wisconsin, the governor calls the situation dire. Some hospitals there overwhelmed. And the peak was pretty bad. We had uh, 11 or 12 weeks where we were stuck in the house. You weren't allowed to go and see friends or family. When uh, a good chunk of people aren't... Uh, worried about what they're doing and, and thinking it's a hoax and uh, things like that. Uh, it's, it's tough. It's tough. We should have been open by now. I'm Shannon Digby. I'm from Wellington and I live in Dormagen between Dusseldorf and Cologne in Germany. So when we had that first lockdown in March of last year, Everyone was really unified um, and happy to follow Merkel, um, the Chancellor. They felt that she was providing really good leadership and it made a lot of sense. Also, the death rate here was really low, but now it's a completely different story. At the beginning of January, it got up to 1,146, I think, on the worst day. That's deaths in one day. Um, so, yeah. 
Jensen. I'm from Wellington, New Zealand, and I currently live in Taichung City, Taiwan. We had 253 days、um, without local recorded local transmission. Unfortunately, that was、um, ended by a New Zealand pilot who worked for Eva Airlines here.、Um, He infected a local woman, and it was a little bit of a controversy. But it wasn't the greatest week to be a New Zealander in Taiwan. The second outbreak、uh, was more, was quite unnerving, actually. This was the first time that Taiwan's defences have really been penetrated. Fortunately, that was、uh, snuffed out about three weeks ago. But it definitely had us on edge, and was a good jolt. I'm Joanne Gillespie. I'm originally from Nelson in New Zealand, but I've been living in a small village in Italy, about an hour north of Rome, for the last 20 years. When、uh, the the death count started mounting in in Lombardy, and it was it was horrific. I can't believe it hasn't even been a year. I, since we locked down, and today I got the first dose of the vaccination. I actually haven't yet been vaccinated, although, funnily enough, I have my appointment for about three hours from now. Everyone knows that this vaccine and the rollout of it is what is going to bring this lockdown to an end. It's what we're relying on. The latest I heard today was there should be enough vaccines for every adult in America. By the end of May, the rollout here has been super slow, and the politicians are really sort of fighting a lot about how slow this rollout's been. I do miss family and friends, and it is, you know, it is a bit of an eerie feeling knowing that I don't really have the option of、um, getting back. We're watching the America's Cup, and you're all standing next to each other, touching, and nobody's wearing masks. That. That is insane to us. It looks like another planet.、And、I think Israelis in general are looking very jealously at New Zealand. They really are, you know, aware of the situation in New Zealand. But I think they also look at New Zealand as kind of a bit,、um, you know, a bit over the top almost. You know, going into lockdown for just a few cases and that kind of thing. We would love to come home for a trip, but that's just not a reality at the moment. Hi, Mum. Hi, Nan. Hi, everyone else. Go the Kiwis. After the break on Q and A, China officials say COVID-19 began in a different country, but a WHO investigator who's just returned from Wuhan gives us his assessment. Some of those ideas made common sense, and some of the,、uh, those ideas have been driven by politics around the world. We have never been before seen a pandemic sparked by. A coronavirus. This is the first pandemic caused by a coronavirus. Tena koto hoki mai. Another little throwback there to the World Health Organization de- declaring a global pandemic in March of last year and introducing most of us to the words coronavirus. Twelve months on, scientists say it could take years before they're certain about the source of COVID-19. The WHO sent a team to Wuhan to investigate the cause, and Australian infectious disease expert Professor Dominic Dwyer was one of the experts on the ground. Professor Dwyer has now returned to Australia and cleared quarantine, and he told me about the investigators' work in Wuhan. 
First of all, uh, the whole key to this mission was trying to understand the origins of SARS coronavirus, not whether countries reacted well to the outbreak, but really focusing on where did it start and where did it come from? Uh, so the mission was really about looking at the, the data around the very first month or so of infections in China, uh, and indeed the couple of months beforehand. And how did the investigation work on the ground? What sort of freedom did you have? Well, look, we had met uh, for some months prior to going to China and worked out within the WHO group and the experts what sort of questions we wanted to ask of Chinese authorities. Uh, and we sent, sent those to them and they got a lot of information ready for us when we arrived in the country. We also had to work with the various hypotheses or ideas as to where the virus came from, knowing that some of those ideas made common sense and some of the, uh, those ideas have been driven by politics around the world. So, so trying to put all of that together uh, was really the key part of the mission. You've indicated it may take years for us to have a complete picture as to the source of this outbreak, but from the information you've seen so far, what was the likeliest source of the outbreak? So we felt that the most likely source, given the history of what's happened with other viruses, in particular coronaviruses, uh, that the source is probably in bats because they carry a lot of these sorts of viruses. Uh, and then it's gone from the bats into some sort of intermediate animal, uh, whether that's a pangolin or some other wildlife, we're not sure. And then from that into humans. And then it's human behaviour, of course, that then spreads, uh, spreads the virus around. Now, that evidence is hard to get, of course, a year later, um, but there's enough sort of preliminary information to suggest that this is the most likely. The other causes or possible causes are still on the table, but you need evidence to, to try and explore those further. So that likeliest hypothesis at this stage is that the virus began in an animal like a bat and then somehow ended up spreading to humans. Exactly. Right. I know even sceptical scientists raise the possibility that the virus could have been created in a lab in Wuhan. What is that likelihood? Well, look, there was certainly a discussion about whether there could, for example, have been a leak from a laboratory that was doing experiments and so on. Uh, and that's been talked about a lot in the media and in political circles as well. I think we've got to remember that laboratory leaks do occur. They have occurred around the world in, in a number of countries, but fortunately they're rare. The other thing is that generally to have a leak in a laboratory, you've got to be growing up the virus in large amounts and, and doing sort of complicated experiments and so on. And many of these bat coronaviruses, that at least the ones that are very closely related to the SARS coronavirus, uh, actually haven't been cultured in the lab. They're only a genetic sequence rather than a live virus. Uh, plus, we also reviewed the lab to look at their biosecurity, uh, look at their staff health, understand what research they were doing there. And on the basis of that, we felt that, well, we couldn't exclude the idea completely, but we felt that it was extremely unlikely. I, I know, though, that there are people who say that the Wuhan Institute of Virology is a world-leading laboratory when it comes to the study of corona-type viruses and that it's an Occam's razor situation. It, it seems almost, you know, it seems remarkable that this virus would originate in a city that just happened to have this lab. What's your response to that? 
Well, look, I think uh, it certainly is uh, a world-leading laboratory and a very good one uh, in terms of the facilities and mm. so on. Uh, it's just sort of uh, uh, located in Wuhan because much of the research done in bats has been done in southern China, uh, as well as in the other countries adjacent, like Cambodia and Vietnam and Laos and so on. Um, so uh, they have been researching those viruses uh, and been involved in it for many years. Uh, but of course, the SARS coronavirus 2, the one that's caused COVID-19, didn't exist in the lab before the outbreak started, and nor did anything that's actually, that could be regarded as a so-called parent virus. We know that somewhere out there is a parent virus in a bat in a cave somewhere. Mm. It's just that no one's found it yet. And the lab in Wuhan hadn't actually found it either. Uh, so I think that, uh, I don't think there's a coincidence there. It just happens to be a research lab. I think what's more sort of important is to try and understand the processes, how viruses might get from bats into animals into, into humans via markets or trade or whatever it might be. I think that's sort of more likely than the laboratory uh, idea, to be honest. And, and you visited those markets. Do, do you think from the conditions that you saw in those markets that's a distinct possibility? The Huanan market, as it's called in Wuhan, is an ideal location for an outbreak of anything to occur. It's, it's uh, crowded, lots of little stalls, uh, pretty dubious uh, uh, drainage and ventilation. Uh, many tens of thousands of people apparently visited in, in a normal workday. It is the classic place to see an outbreak. The question is whether it started there or not. And in fact, some of the very early genetic data from the viruses showed that, yes, there's a cluster in that um, uh, uh, market, but there are also other viral strains that are a little bit different circulating in the community, which tells us that the market was probably an amplifier and that the virus, in fact, was already circulating in the community in Wuhan even before then. There was significant geopolitical tensions that came into um, the permissions you had in China and the decision to even allow the WHO team to investigate. What was it like working your way around Wuhan? How closely were you monitored? Well, look, uh, I mean, we were in quarantine, uh, a sort of initial hard quarantine and then a sort of lighter kind of quarantine, a bit like a cricket team or something, in that we could all mix. So, uh, and that was due to public health requirements in Wuhan and perfectly justified. Uh, so we were able to go wherever we asked to go. And the WHO recognised that a lot of new data was presented that hadn't been otherwise presented before. So in fact, I think um, there was a lot of openness uh, from our Chinese colleagues in this area. Now, of course, there could be stuff that's hidden, but one wouldn't know that necessarily, of course. But, but I think in general, the information we got was extremely helpful in trying to uh, work through some of these ideas about how the virus started. But you've hit on a central point there, and I, and I know that, that many sceptics will focus on this. For months, the Chinese government resisted calls for an independent inquiry into the source of this virus. How do you know that evidence hasn't been covered up? How do you know this wasn't carefully stage-managed? Well, look, I guess that's hard to know. I mean, certainly in the conversations 
that we had as a group with our peer uh, colleagues in China, the other doctors and the scientists and epidemiologists, those discussions were good. And those people are clearly just as interested as anybody else in finding out the source. I mean, they're the ones that were most affected. Uh, I think whether on the political side things could have been done differently and so on, well, everybody will have an opinion on that. But that's not what kind of what the point of the mission was. It wasn't about sort of blaming or commenting on responses and hiding data and so on. It was about trying to find the source. I think the other thing we've got to remember too is that it was very striking in talking to the doctors and scientists and patients, we met patients as well, about what a big impact this had in Wuhan in those early months when they knew nothing of what was this virus was. Uh, it was panic stations all around, an incredibly difficult environment to work. So it's easy to say now, oh, well, we should have done this, we should have done that. Um, but I think extremely difficult at the time, and I, I think we've got to remember that. One of your concerns was access to the raw data when it came to the patient files from the patients who were the first to be infected with COVID-19. You sought the raw data, which would be standard practice, but you were only given a summary by the Chinese officials. What are your concerns there? Well, look, I mean, there are a number of different ways where you investigate outbreaks. And the sort of standard way that it would be done in New Zealand or Australia mm. or most places is to go over patient by patient, look to see what sort of questions people are asking, ask about their risk factors, all of that sort of standard outbreak investigation. Now, we certainly received the aggregated data, in other words, a summary of all of what was happening, uh, and that was very valuable. We started to go through patient by patient by patient, which is a time-consuming and slow process. And you clearly couldn't do that within a couple of weeks. Um, but we, got, we made some progress in that. And the mission is designed to allow things to continue, for research to continue. So I think that there'll be ongoing work to further explore some of this raw data. Mm. And, and that hopefully will allay the anxieties of people who think things were, were deliberately hidden, which I don't think they were. Chinese officials have been supporting a theory which suggests the source of the virus came from overseas. From what you've seen, is there any credence to that theory? Well, look, this is tricky. I mean, there's no doubt the virus exploded in Wuhan. That's no argument about that whatsoever. The other thing uh, we also know is that there was probably a lot of virus circulating in Wuhan at the time they started to recognise what was going on. But what they didn't recognise, and of course we know this now, and all countries have had to deal with, that you can get spread of the virus by people who don't know they've got it. What we don't know is whether there were people with that infection that might have travelled from Wuhan to other parts of the world and therefore started things uh, there without anyone knowing, or indeed whether people came from somewhere else to Wuhan for that matter. Uh, so, so it's really tricky. I mean, we, can't, we certainly don't get away from the, the fact that it started at big time in Wuhan, uh, but what we need to do, and I think all countries need to do it, uh, uh, we need to sort of look at when were our first cases in you know, our respective countries mm. and just check that there wasn't circulating stuff beforehand. I mean, we know, for example, in Sydney, we had our first cases in late January, uh, but in fact, there are three flights a week from Wuhan direct to Sydney in the period of time beforehand. So we don't actually know ourselves whether there could have been virus circulating. So look, it's an open question. And I think the WHO recommended that you take a kind of global approach to this. That was Professor Dominic Dwyer. After the break, Auckland businesses hoping like anything, this is the last time they have to close and reopen.
Yes, if you're in Auckland, brunch is back on the menu. But how have hospitality workers coped during the last seven days? And what do they want next? More shortly. This plan is consistent with our cautious and careful elimination strategy. Although compared to Level 3, Level 2 feels more like normal life, it is still not business as usual. That was Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern urging prudence from Aucklanders moving to alert Level 2 this morning. Having been in lockdown twice in the space of a few weeks, business owners in our biggest city are anxious to get on with things whilst avoiding future lockdowns. Given alert levels have just changed, we figured we should check in with the Eggs Benedict crowd at an SME this morning. One News reporter Kim Baker-Wilson is standing by for us at Crave Cafe in Morningside. Kia ora, Kim. All right. Well, if you're in Auckland, brunch is now firmly back on the menu. The cafe behind me is humming. We're in Morningside. We're in Crave Cafe. And Nigel Cottle is the man that's looking after this cafe. He's pretty pleased with what's happening around here this morning. Yeah. Nigel, what do you make of the site around here? Uh, it's good. It's awesome to have people back in the space. You know, we've had seven days of this massive space just being empty, you know, and cavernous. And so it's lovely to have people back, engaged, connected, you know, and just, just loving the neighbourhood. It's been, what well, it's felt like a long seven days for the rest of us. It must have felt like a really long seven days for people like you. Yeah, I think after the three-day lockdown and just sort of coming straight into the seven-day one again, there was a sense of unknownst, you know, and, and just a, a like, oh, how's this going to go? How are we going to roll? Will it keep going? So I think the uncertainty that was there at the start of the week in particular, before we had all those consecutive days of, of no cases, um, just made everyone nervous. There has been some government help. Very quickly, what do you need to see next in your sector? We really appreciate the government's help and, and we support the government in terms of its decision-making. Uh, it is frustrating, but we know it's like essentially not their fault. Um, and so what we need to see next, I think, is a, a continued um, push into the hospitality sector in, in particular. There was a, the idea of a, a Minister for Hospitality. There's, there's you know, I, I think that $40 billion goes through that um, industry and, and it's a big deal, but there's no one specifically looking after it. And, and I think it's probably about time. So more answers to come. I can see we're just about running out of time. I think it's time for Jack to get down here for a coffee himself. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, come on, Chelsea, we'll make you a good one. <laughs> yeah, I'm not just concerned about the coffee. Those hot cross buns looked rica as. They look awesome. Thanks so much, Kim. Kim and Nigel there at Crave Cafe in Morningside. Hopefully uh, all those SMEs in Auckland that have been shut down over the last week are enjoying good trade today. Kua mutu. That is Q&A for this week. Ngā mihi ki a koutou i ngā karere. Thank you for your company and your contributions. As always, thanks to the Q&A team. Marae is up next. Hey te wiki. We will see you next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.